0: One thing that, that has always struck me as mm-hmm. kind of surprising about evolutionary medicine is that it's um, not that frequently included in med school curricula.
1: Yeah, it's not. and It, it, is, it surprises me even today yeah. that it's not. So I, I teach at the University of New Mexico in the Health Science Center. I teach medical students. I teach medical residents. I am part of an academic uh, department. And the students that I encounter, I try to teach them something about this idea about evolutionary medicine. I think it's applicable to the patients that I see in the ER. But my students tell me that they don't learn much about this at all. Or if they tell me if they learned anything, they learned it as undergraduates in a class like the one that I taught in the biology department on the main campus. They don't learn it in medical school. So, for people that are more interested in that, I have a recent podcast that I posted on my blog, which is evolutionmedicine.com that's evolutionmedicine one word.com cool. and i had a podcast with my colleague his name is coffee brown super smart best guy best name ever it is
0: it really is i don't
1: think he was actually born with it but is it actually well, spelled it's spelled exactly the way wow. that you would expect that's amazing coffee is fantastic in more ways than one
0: it's true we're drinking tea right now <laughs> we're though, drinking tea
1: so. but coffee and i had a great discussion about that very topic but yeah it just does it's not a thing in medical school it's ignored so maybe I'm attracted to more fringy things or things that are a bit outside the mainstream. So that makes it a perfect fit for me.
0: Sure.
1: All right, let's uh, Cool. All right. Let's see what's next.
0: Next slide. Oh, thank you. there we go. Okay.
1: And while we're defining terms, we've already kind of told, told you what evolutionary medicine is, but what really is evolution? I think that this is something useful to oh, yeah. talk about. Um, <laughs> so this guy, do you know who he is?
0: John Hawks. Yeah, he's an anthropologist. He has his own
1: blog. Uh, It's worth looking up. I got this off of his his site. Um, Super cool. He posts amazing stuff. He's a really smart guy. Of course, he's focusing mostly on uh, evolution, and evolution as it happens or as it applies to people and historic people. He's
0: like behavioral ecologist guy, right? Yeah. I think something like that. Right. Which is like a fancy way of saying how... People's behaviors and life histories interact with the environments that they live in across the world, basically. Right. So.
1: so, he has this definition of evolution, and it involves again, this is the class professor part of this thing. So sure. it involves these these elements: population change, so things change. That that's part of evolution. You have to have genetic change, so the changes have to be heritable, and this either involves natural selection, which is non-random, or you can get some random changes by pure random chance. And that's known as genetic drift. And the key that he, is the, that he has made, the point is that evolution happens all the time. It's not something that happened you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago or millions of years ago. It's an it ongoing deal. It
0: did happen deal. then. It did. But it's also still happening now. Yeah, but I
1: think people have this idea that it's yeah, somehow historical. That it's done it's now. You go, you go now. to a museum of natural history to see evolution. Yeah, right? for sure. And the, the key thing that I try to teach my medical students is that, hey, it's happening right now. It's happening yeah. You know, in the hospital, there's evolution happening. Oh, yeah. Evolution, of course, there's changes occurring in human populations, but even more to the point, there's changes happening in in microbes and in pathogens every time we have an antibiotic prescription.
0: For sure. We've actually talked about uh, antibiotic resistance on a previous episode of Science Happy Hour, which is the show that's coming on. Right. So.
1: So. Yeah. Antibiotic resistance is a huge topic. Oh, yeah. And we'll get into that.
0: I so, imagine we'll probably have a whole. We should have an episode on an that. An episode.
1: All these things are, deserve their own episode. Oh, yeah. so this is going to be a bit of an overview, just a little bit of introduction to people to, so that they can kind of get started with this. So let's let's see what's next. All right. All right. So we're just going to go through those elements. Uh, this is an image of a team of Sherpas, and Sherpas that live in Tibet, and these gentlemen had climbed uh, Mount Everest and it turns That's out that no joke. yeah it turns out that people that climb mount everest by and large the majority of the people who have successfully climbed mount everest are in fact sherpas so sherpas have some genetic changes that permit them to live at high altitude and,
0: and also phenotypic you know, as well like theoretically. i mean that there would be some sort of high altitude adaptation potentially that right. might be a result of the genetic and also environmental right. interaction.
1: So they have a change in genes, and they also have a change in their body shape. And you're right. One of the one of the things, if you if you measure their chest diameter, hmm. they've got a bigger, like a barrel chest, more and more yeah. anterior posterior diameter of their chest. Right. So they can right. Thank you. <laughs> so they're able to breathe at a, at a with a higher uh, minute ventilation than we can, and that's a big that's advantage really cool. if you're living in a place. Where there's less, you know, oxygen pressure, and fewer oxygen molecules going to your lungs. So yeah, that's classy, just an example of human population change. Let's see what's next. All right. So here's the genetic change. That this is a a plot that just shows how different the genes are between different human groups. And what's pictured here is a bunch of different Asian groups. And you can see that as compared to, not, I, misspe- I misspoke. The Sherpas live in Nepal, and so ah, okay. not in Tibet. Sure. So they're a different, distinct high altitude right. group, and that's shown in this, this slide here too. And that the one of those red groups off to the right is, is Japanese. So mm. this what this shows is that you know people that have lived in genetic isolation, either on an island or on a virtual island because they're at super high altitude, they tend to have evolved some genetic differences over time. So we can see this when we look at people, and this is pretty much. Anthropology, right?
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. Right, this is what
1: anthropologists do. Yeah, they find people, measure things about them, make some inferences and test some hypotheses. Uh, And I want to do a little shout out here to uh, Cynthia Bell, who has done some of the, I think, most impressive high altitude work, Mm. uh, showing genetic adaptation to altitude in some of these high
0: altitude groups. Yeah, I've seen a lot of uh, work done with Peruvians, also high altitude population in the Andes.
1: Right, So. so there are there are three. This is a bit of a tangent, but there are three. Major high altitude groups. They are people living in Asia on the Himalayan plateau. They are people that live in the Andes, so in, in South America. And then the third group that people don't think about too much, but they're kind of, the, in some ways, the coolest and least studied, are uh, people living in Ethiopia, Ethiopian highlanders. Again, mm. topic of a whole different, you know, yeah, class or episode. But we should definitely get into sure. that sometime because yeah. it's extremely cool. It's a, it's a, it's a topic I love to cover. Let's let's see what we have next.
0: All right.
1: So if humans undergo genetic change and that's useful to study, it's even more so maybe, you could argue, especially now that we're in the middle of a huge influenza epidemic. But this is a picture of just tracking the genetic change of influenza over time and how it switches from different hosts and then can can actually recombine. So the thing that's amazing about influenza is it can live in pigs. That's why we have the swine flu. It can live in birds, and that's why we have avian flu. And, of course, we get flu shots, at least I do every year, because it happens in us people, too.
0: Isn't it required for people who work in the health profession in general?
1: Yeah, so there's you have two options. So okay. you can either get your shot, and that's probably 99% of people. But if you are against vaccines, which I don't recommend, again, topic for a different day, yeah. maybe.
0: <laughs> Definitely.
1: Um, the people that don't get vaccinated have to wear a mask for the entire oh. flu season. And flu season lasts a long time. Starts in October, goes through March or April. It's almost half the year you're wearing a mask, a face mask. That's not a good idea. Yeah,
0: that's a big right. change <laughs> to have to wear that all the time.
1: But the point of this slide is that this genetic change we can track. And we can, and this is very useful to epidemiologists. It's helpful to know where these viruses are coming from, what's their, ev- what's their evolutionary path they've been on, is there a way we can interrupt that, what do we do when there's outbreaks in, in animal species that can put us at risk. And, and so on and so forth. So super exciting stuff.
0: Yeah.
1: Natural selection. Natural
0: selection. This is a bit
1: of a review, I'm sure, for some people. Um, but this is a, just an image showing differences in antibiotic resistance. And it, it is true that for many bacteria that will find some variation in resistance in most every population that we look at right now, and it's this is a genetically heritable trait for a bacterium, if we're looking at bacteria or for flu actually can evolve resistance mm. to the antivirals that we use. We see antibiotic resistance in medications that we use for malaria, all these kinds of things. Bottom line is that when we give antibiotics, that variation gets shrunk down, that the microbes undergo selection, the sensitive ones go away, which is being shown in the middle part of the slide. And then ultimately what's left over is a bunch of Bacteria or microbes that have a high degree of resistance. So this is Non-random change the non randomness comes from the agent of selection that we're using and that's the antibiotics So that's what we can see here. So we're almost done. Let's, let's, let's go to the next slide, right. which is the random change and this is genetic drift <laughs> So here we have a bunch of bugs or we can imagine a population of beetles that, that have some genetic variation for color and they just get stepped on. So there's a random event that has nothing to do. The person that's stepping on them wasn't seeking out the green ones. But it just so happens that after this random event, that what's left over is a change in the, in the population. So again, this is just basic biology, basic evolution. I think it's useful, I hope. But uh, this is, you know, in thinking about evolution, the randomness is important sometimes. But what, what I think is super cool is the non-random part, the part that happens by selection. And this is what medical students do not learn in medical school.
0: Mm. All right. Next. Oh.
1: All right. So Same we're topic. that's we're done with review. We're we we're, we're going to kind of launch into some different things. So one area that people are very interested in, wouldn't you agree? Oh yeah. Is cancer. So cancer gets a lot of attention. There's a lot of money that flows to the hospital. We have a we have. A Really fancy cancer center with it's quite the nicest building. It's got some of the highest paid people in it. Mm -hmm. So cancer gets a lot of attention, a lot of research dollars, and some of the most interesting work that's been done recently has to do with applying some of these evolutionary concepts to cancer. There's lots of evolutionary things we can say about cancer, but if you just look at the clones, the mutants that turn into these little clones that turn into a tumor, you could actually track the evolution of those mutations and then the, the the changes that happen. It's basically evolution and selection happening in real time in every cancer
0: so I mean it's kind of similar to the antibiotic resistance in a way
1: well it kind of is except that in the case of cancers they're escaping these, these are these are rogue cells that are escaping the controls that guide most of our right. our, our body cells and so by escaping those controls on growth and reproduction, these, these cells that have gone rogue are able to then reproduce without um, checks and balances. Right. Okay. When we treat cancers with chemotherapy, we're doing the exact same thing that happens with the antibody.
0: Right. Okay. So that's, so that's a, what I was that's
1: thinking. That's exactly right. Got it. 100%. But before we treat them, what's happening is that the little cells get a little a fitness advantage. They're reproducing faster than all their neighbor cells. Mm. And that's kind of how life works. But if you get this fitness advantage, you get this temporary uh, increase in replication of, of your genes. And the genes are different than their neighbor cells because they've undergone some kind of a mutation. Right. Bottom line here is that evolution applies to cancer in some really interesting ways.
0: And that's in, it's within an organism, too. So it's within an
1: organism. And most of the time, it's within, within the lifetime of an organism. Right, for sure. Because when you die, usually you take your cancer with you.
0: Yes, usually. usually. Right. Not always. There's a couple
1: of infectious cancers. Then We're going to have so much fun with this podcast. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> oh heck, we can talk about Tasmanian uh, face tumors. Have you heard
0: about that? Oh, no. No? Oh, man.
1: All right. Tasmanian devils that live in the island of Tasmania, south of Australia. What's well, actually in Australia? but south of the landmass, you know, close to Antarctica. Uh, the the marsupials that live there, they actually have an infectious tumor. So the the tumor is not related to the um, individual devil that has it. Wow! And they, they transmit this tumor with by biting each other. Oh wow! So hey, we'll, let's let's that's again so save bad. that one for another day. Yeah, it's really really neat stuff.
0: Wow, that's interesting. <laughs>
1: Hopefully, our listeners have heard about that one. Uh, let's
0: see. We have a question. All right. What is this stream about? It's a about, great question.
1: This stream is about thinking about evolution, how that applies to our bodies, how that applies to patients that I see in the hospital, and why it's important. Yeah. So we're, we're going we're gonna to get into that. So I'm just giving a bit of review at this point, but we're going to get into why it is that an evolutionary idea is useful for doctors. Yeah. And why, why it's probably useful for patients, too. So I'll, I'll, I'll cut to the chase here. I'll tell you why I think this is an important st- stream and why it's kind of cool. Okay. Which is... He
0: is. He's
1: a doctor. <laughs> I am. Yeah. I am
0: not. Well, so not she, yet. She's, a, not an MD. she's an almost doctor. Almost doctor, but almost a different doctor. kind of doctor.
1: Right. So I'm an MD. I take care of patients. And I truly believe <clears throat> that people that are not paying attention to evolution are missing the boat. And patients are dying as a result. So that's the bottom line. I think, yeah. this, I think it matters.
0: And for me, I, I think the the medicine side of evolutionary medicine is it's a whole series of topics that we think about, we hear about, we talk about, they affect us on a daily basis or throughout our lifetime. So they're very um, apparent things that we don't necessarily think about from an evolutionary perspective. And that's yeah. why I think like the general public, can can benefit from this kind of discussion because a lot of the topics are around things that you will probably experience like taking antibiotics like getting sick yeah or getting sick like going to
1: the hospital so you can ask next time you go to the hospital ask your doctor hey have you heard about this thing called evolutionary medicine and then then check back with me and tell me what they say
0: yeah it'd be an interesting little (laughs) survey for sure um so (laughs) axed is also a doctor and came in because they saw the colon look at that Look cool yeah excellent yeah. there nice. you go with your colon maybe we should
1: move on from the colon yeah
0: all right. <laughs> we don't need to stare at the colon any longer <laughs> right here we go all right so i've been i hint- have this book you have this book i think it's like actually right on maybe over there maybe down below somewhere all right maybe i don't know i'll, I'll, I'll I take, know I I'll have take it. your word for it we yeah. could uh, i have the nessie too yeah one so. so
1: this is a book by paul ewald this is the guy that got me into this he's an evolutionary biologist studied birds for most of his career he went down to mexico and south america and then he got a really bad case of diarrhea and he started And he was As sitting on the does. toilet he's like you know pooping every 20 minutes and he thought about you know what is up with these bugs that are making me so sick and it, can i get some can i understand something about the way that they evolve and his insight he's got he had a bunch of really cool ideas but uh one of his main ideas was uh that uh, there's good evolutionary reasons why waterborne pathogens, like a lot of diarrhea bugs, are really bad for you and make you really sick. Hmm. So I don't want to belabor that one, but he came, he came. I was I was at your stage. I was mm-hmm. a graduate student. I was at Cornell uh, for a couple of years in a PhD program, and Paul Ewald came and gave a talk. And I'm like, you know what? I'm out. Yeah. This is totally cool. I want to do this. MD. I'm going to go get an MD. So that's yep. what I did. I uh, I gave wow. up on, on my PhD dream. I got an MD instead.
0: Big influential guy in your life then. Yeah, pretty
1: That's much. That's cool. So Paul Ewald.
0: All right. Check out that book. I, I read that in undergrad, I believe. In I actually took an evolutionary medicine class in undergrad as well as grad. Oh. Ah, so, so you came prepared. Um, I did a little bit, yeah. It was um it was much more of a, you know, general overview, certainly. Yeah. Whereas yours I feel like was more topic driven, if that makes sense.
1: Well, I think that's important. Yeah. Just in terms of teaching, and also sure. just to kind of keep things real,
0: oh. because
1: a lot of the stuff—it's just—it's such a shame if it ends up being dry and not interesting. Yeah. Because this is stuff, like I said, it matters. It's—it's it's actually really—it's real life or death stuff.
0: Oh yeah, right. You and know, it's things that are more, more likely to affect you than not, probably. Yeah.
1: So there's another guy called his name is Andrew Reed. Um, he's another biologist, and his his line is, "What you don't know about evolution can kill you." And, and that evolution kills. And he's got a whole deal on that. He's not talking about us humans evolving. He's talking about the bugs. So yeah. The evolution of the bugs that make us sick. They're busy evolving, whether we like it or not. And we can ignore it. And if we ignore it, we do that at our own peril.
0: Strong words.
1: There you go. Evolution kills.
0: Yeah. All right.
1: Okay. We're still oh, this We're is still strong. in the uh, textbook version of this. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the the one guy that we're talking about, when. When we, when we talk about ev- evolution in general is
0: who's this darwin
1: oh yeah charles yeah. darwin charles darwin yeah he wrote a book yep called on the origin of species 18. or wallace
0: oh yeah wallace right. gets a little less of a
1: now wallace definitely like deserves a, a shout out yeah for all sure. right so both these guys had the same idea Alfred, like,
0: almost simultaneously russell wallace yeah.
1: and charles don't know his middle name Darwin.
0: I don't remember his name. Yeah. I have origin of Species.
1: Do you? That's yeah. great. Yeah, so good. Charles Darwin, after he gets back from his trip around the world on the on the beagle, and he's seen the Galapagos finches, he's putting it, putting it all together. He's writing a book. He's did taking... you notice
0: the finch on the, the, the snake staff there? That is awesome. That's what I I, I thought that was just I'll Portlandia.
1: Go. Put a yeah. bird on it.
0: I mean, it is put a bird on it. Let's put but a bird on it. Specifically, put a finch Ho- on it. Hopefully, you guys get that reference. <laughs> it is specifically a finch. So. <laughs>
1: that's that's cool. Yeah, I liked it. I do like it. Thank yeah. you for making that great yeah, logo. Yeah, for sure. I so, had fun. <laughs> so Darwin is busy sketching, and he basically has this idea that that everything comes from a common ancestor. And this is his sketch on a piece of paper, and he says, "I think," and then he kind of goes on to argue. Yeah, it's hard to read it. You can't really read it. But this is this is the first, you know family tree of life
0: wow that's pretty powerful yeah. back in 1837 something like that
1: Is that was says? yeah his notebooks 18, mm-hmm. so yeah so he wrote his textbook or the big book origin of species in 19 or sorry 1859 yep and we have to give alfred uh wallace credit for pushing darwin to do that yeah there's no question that and he had the for same sure. idea yep. all right let's cool. check out the next one all
0: right
1: All right. so we've gone the from darwin's version. notebook. <laughs> See, this is the kind of thing we can see in in science right now. Same idea, the tree of life. What and a beautiful this image! This is a picture of all of the bacteria that are in your guts. Oh my god! All right, they're all related, and this is the biodiversity in your guts, and we can we can make the same kind of tree. Wow! So it's kind of gone from Dar- so this Darwin's idea has been used a gazillion times, and I guess the question for you: What do you what do you think? The people that wrote this article it's clearly evolutionary yeah it obviously has some relationship to our bodies and our health yep it was talking about the microbes that inhabit our guts yep but do you think these writers were writing this in terms of evolutionary medicine no with that label I no do not. so here's the problem so we're talking about this thing which is evolutionary medicine but there's a bunch of people doing work that i think you can call evolutionary medicine but they don't think of it in themselves in that way it just becomes a foundational thing. It's like you just take it for granted. It becomes part of their toolkit. So I think there's some utility in thinking about this stuff explicitly and really recognizing this is an evolutionary process.
0: Yeah, for sure. Uh, it feels like it's a lot mm-hmm. of what's being done that is relevant to evolutionary medicine, just like you were saying, is work like this where they're not necessarily t- um, you know, t- tying all of the connections between between the, the different approaches within genetics, population genetics specifically, or actual clinical research. And it's, it's to me, evolutionary medicine is, is not just a body of work, but it's also an approach, I yeah. think. So it's like, it's something it's you can approach. apply to different it's a tool bodies kit. of research. There's a bunch yeah. of
1: people using the toolkit that aren't even aware that it's really evolutionary. Right. And the, the part that I like best is when we really think about the evolution part, and we apply that way of thinking to a new problem, and then that that takes us to, to some new places. So we'll we'll get into that maybe with yeah. the next slide. Okay. I forgot what the next slide is. Let's find out. Oh yeah, same thing. Hit it, hit it one more time.
0: Okay.
1: So here's our tree of life. That little circle on the what's that's the bottom left side of the of the image. That's us. That's all plants and animals are in that one little piece. So Andrew, we're just a teeny up? bit of the biodiversity. All the different kinds of Creatures that live, inhabit this planet. We think of ourselves as being super important, and I think we probably are, but we're just a tiny piece of the pie. Yep. All these other organisms, mostly microbes, have been busy evolving. So life is mostly microbes, and that's the, that's the uh, point of this.
0: Archaea are something that I've, I've not really known much about, but have come up recently. So all, all Archaea
1: are, these are actually the microbes in our guts that might be responsible for gas nothing huh.
0: thanks archaea
1: thanks archaea you know the dis- disulf- of vibrio i believe is an archaean i could be wrong someone who knows more than me might might uh correct me but anyway Somebody
0: fact check that.
1: <laughs> methane and hydrogen hydrogen gas that's in your guts you can thank the archaeans for that awesome yeah they're basically bi- really bacteria exciting. but turns out they're different all right
0: serena
1: there's serena so this isn't this is a picture. so I think apropos of recent cultural events, Serena's image of Serena is talking about her speaking up for equal pay for women uh, but that's not why I included the image because uh, she was also in the news recently for being sick.
0: Oh I saw this yeah. and she had to tell her doctors how to take care of her yeah I, won- so
1: I wonder her, I wonder how her I wonder how her doctors feel about that because I'm sure I can kind of picture good. the whole thing kind of playing out yeah, um but yeah she. The bottom line, according to the news reports, is that she had a clot in her leg that actually went a little bit to her lungs and caused what's called a pulmonary embolus. This is a really scary thing. So as an ER doctor, if you showed up in the ER, for instance, and you had chest pain, that's what I would worry about. Mm -hmm. Because this happens to young people, uh, young women, more than men, and it causes clots and can kill people. In fact, one of my colleagues died of a pulmonary embolus. Oh, wow. So uh, really sad. And he was in his 50s. So, yes, people can – this definitely shortens lives, and it's a a big deal. So, Serena told her doctors to get the CAT scan that showed the blood clot in her lungs, and then they put her on the right treatment, and hopefully she's fine. I hope hope she's doing okay. But the reason why this this caught my eye is that Serena had a mutation, and it was called Factor V Leiden. Oh. Yeah, anyway, so this is a mutation that involves uh, clotting, clotting factors the clotting factor 5. And it, the bottom line is that people that carry this mutation have a much higher risk of getting a blood clot. And it kills people.
0: Mm. Hey, so, Knight. Of course. You're most welcome.
1: <laughs> so why would we have a mutation that kills people, and it's pretty common? Yeah. So that's the Good question. So this is the kind of thing, if you have an evolutionary point of view, and we know how natural selection works, and natural selection usually takes out of a population and removes it from a gene pool if it's really bad for you and kills you, so, if you can imagine a gene that killed you when you were an infant, and if it killed 100% of the people that, that had it, that gene wouldn't last very long nope. in the population. It would go away. So this one doesn't kill you right away, but it does kill some people. Mm-hmm. And luckily for us, and for Serena, it hasn't killed her, and hopefully it won't. But the question remains, this is a common mutation. This factor V lied, and all medical students learn about this. And one in five uh, people like us... Um, caucasian uh, anglos in the population will carry the mutation i think it's a little bit rarer actually in in african americans but still one in five super common that we'd we'd have this so the question is all right kills people does it have some side benefit that protects people from because
0: otherwise why would it be so prevalent right exactly so that's the that's the evolutionary thinking is what so if you're if
1: you're weird like me and maybe a little bit less weird like Kate then you're gonna <laughs> you're gonna have you have these ideas you're gonna say hey wait a second what's up with this mutation why is it so common it's co- way more common than you to predict because there must be something which is keeping it in the population so that's the idea so factor five Leiden I guess we can look at the next slide yeah this is just a, a and this, fun, is,
0: this is just one example uh, of um, a lot of studies that sort of live within mm-hmm. evolutionary medicine it's it's about not all of it, but a lot of it is about thinking about things that affect us in an in some negative way and trying to understand why it exists to a certain level of prevalence. Um, so this is just one example. Of
1: yeah, that. so we can pitch it to the audience. Anybody have any idea why it would be good to have blood clots?
0: <laughs> yeah, good question. Well, so mm-hmm. let's see. I'll speculate here. So um, maybe not necessarily blood clots, but clotting. Mm-hmm. Okay. I could When's see being, useful? um if you are like in a situation where you might get cut a lot and you don't want to bleed to death. All right.
1: So, one idea there's a couple ideas in the literature, and I think you're right. So, hemorrhage, and people not bleeding to death. Um, people have had the idea that women in particular might benefit from this mutation oh. if it keeps you from that bleeding to death during childbirth. Yeah. So, that's one idea. The other idea, which I like a little bit better, is a bit more complicated, but it basically says that clotting helps. Fight infection, and oh. this this one has not been gotten a lot of uh, support in the you know, research papers, like the New England Journal. But it's an idea which is out there, and it's kind of cool.
0: Interesting. Hmm. Yes, it indeed it is nice when you don't bleed to death. Yeah. Yes. Good stuff. Yes. So Although let's, uh, saying exsanguination is pretty fun.
1: Exsanguination,
0: <laughs> which is the official cause of death when you bleed to death.
1: Right. Yeah. <laughs> Lethal that's, hemorrhage. That's right. There you go.
0: Um. Okay. So this Here is a,
1: the awkward yeti. I love this cartoon. <laughs> awkward this guy, yeti is pretty good. This guy is fantastic. Uh, the other cartoon that that I like is by Beatrice the biologist.
0: Oh, I have not across. seen that one. We'll
1: have to include that one next time if mm-hmm. I'm invited back. But the awkward yeti is a platelet. <laughs> this is a platelet party, and then the final <laughs> panel says, "I'm really stuck. I'm stuck. Wait." <laughs> anyway, I think it's funny.
0: Wait, what's <laughs> the movie?
1: Oh, okay. So I do recommend I you it. check out the Awkward
0: Yeti. So they're actually clotting there. Yeah,
1: so clots are both good and bad. And sometimes, depending on the situation, uh, clots can be very useful. And the downside is, yeah, they can kill you if they go to your lungs.
0: There are a lot of different clotting disorders, too, right? Yeah. And a lot of those are, are genetically driven, I believe.
1: Um, this is true. So let's let's save that idea for another yeah. uh, another episode fun fact fun fact
0: (laughs) that one platelet is ruining the party apparently Uh, all right um i just want to skip let's just skip through these
1: two things okay these are two slides that basically show that and we'll keep going okay
0: keep Keep going going. keep going going. going.
1: yep and and keep going
0: keep going okay
1: all right here we go antibiotic resistance the last slides were just about how there's some movement towards getting some of these evolutionary ideas really in the medical school so if you're thinking about going to medical school you will have to learn a little bit of this and you'll be tested for it on the MCAT my students that I'm taking that I'm teaching right now they tell me well if it's not on the test I don't want to learn it so really that's that's really the thing that drives them and welcome
0: they, to the problem with our education and they system. care all
1: they care about is their score <laughs> so if it's not on the test they don't care anyway yeah, <laughs> getting back to real life.
0: Let's yeah, I won't get on this a soapbox there. <laughs> this resistance
1: that is. We talk about antibiotic resistance happening, like it says in this title, or developing. But what is it really doing?
0: Hmm. It's evolving. Yeah, so it is evolving. That is ana- the right word.
1: We should really be calling this resistance evolution
0: mm-hmm. instead
1: of just saying it's a thing that happens. yeah It's really evolution. And That's it's evolution a good point. Exactly as we've been talking about.
0: Even just by sort of removing that word from this headline especially Mm -hmm. from uh, a body such as the world health organization that's very well respected and in terms of these Mm -hmm. kinds of things um you it just sort of removes it from the equation even just in the public consciousness
1: that's right and words matter yeah so if you say that something happens instead of something evolves that changes how you think about it. It
0: feels like when you say it happens, it feels random. Yep. Or it's just a thing that comes be. And it's comes so, so not random. Yeah, right.
1: Yeah. All right. Let's we'll, we'll see what's next year.
0: <laughs> it looks like ground beef. I totally thought you know, the it, exact it same thing. It does.
1: <laughs> Apparently, it's a picture of some microbes. E. coli. I think. Yeah,
0: it does look like E. coli. <laughs> it does. Yeah. You know
1: what? But E. coli goes with, with ground beef. Yeah, it's true. Just, just saying. Yep.
0: And poop. And poop. Yep.
1: <laughs> All right.
0: Here we go. So heavy hitting questions. Yeah.
1: So just saying something exists like evolution and how it applies to bugs like E. coli and ourselves, it might be true. And at least for me, it's Mm -hmm. interesting. And hopefully it's going to be interesting to people more than me. But the real key to whether something kind of gets a lot of attention is whether it's important. And I think um, me personally, I think that evolutionary medicine is true interesting and important and that's kind of what we'll focus on for the rest of our time here
0: cool I agree by the way just for the record
1: (laughs) and we get into understanding its importance when we realize the mistakes that we're making as doctors Mm. so doctors make a bunch of mistakes I think that doctors don't understand adaptation in human biology which is actually really important yeah and the one, the, probably the best example of this is fever, which we'll get to in a second.
0: Ooh, yeah. Classic. And then
1: the other thing that here, we're, we're just kind of wandering through hospitals, prescribing antibiotics willy-nilly, and we're making antibiotic resistance evolve. And we are the natural selection. So we are the natural selection we've been waiting for, us doctors. We're, we're giving uh, something which kills off the sensitive bugs, which usually are the good bugs, and we're leaving the bad bugs. And this is something that we don't think about, but it's super important. Probably people have had some experience with this. We're getting to the point where we have patients that we can't treat because they have resistant bugs. Right. And we're we're responsible for that. If we weren't prescribing the antibiotics, it wouldn't happen. It wouldn't evolve. And the third thing is that this is a bit more complicated, that competition between genomes can cause disease. This is kind of higher level stuff, but again, something that doctors need to know about.
0: Yeah, for sure um our buddy ghost here said that um they had the old uh the old campylobacter once felt like death
1: yeah campylobacter is bad causes dysentery not not good
0: oh my (laughs) god that's like straight out of the oregon trail
1: (laughs) we'll we'll see what's next all right okay so let's just go through these quickly so doctors (laughs) make mistakes this is an example uh the image comes from what's her name
0: Kayakawa. Kayakawa, yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: And it's entitled Fever. This happens all the time. Nurses will come to me and say, Hey, patient has a fever, can we give them can we give them Tylenol? And what I usually tell the nurses is, Hey, that fever that we want to treat actually might be doing some good. There's really good evidence that fever is an evolved adaptation that allows us to deal with infection. And so the the implication of this is that some patients that we give Tylenol to we're taking away that host defense, we call a defense against infection, and people may actually die because of this. So um, it it's, turns out it's really hard to show this in terms of research, but there's there's enough papers, and I could share them with you maybe at a different time. Um, and I'm I'm convinced of this. We should not be treating fever in the ER.
0: So this is a an interesting topic because, mm-hmm. well, first of all. Um I suppose we should probably establish that the reason why the fever is a host defense is because you're basically turning up the thermostat inside your body and that's making your body less habitable for whatever is infecting you right. essentially. So it it's making be...
1: your less your body less habitable for you too. Yeah, that's so and that's that... <laughs> my question is like so yeah. how
0: do we balance um how we feel and our sort of quality of life during this particular time and like being able to function still. Right. While also recognizing that this fever is helping you. Because yeah. fevers are awful. You feel
1: fevers terrible. Feel bad. Yeah. And in the pre antibiotic era, doctors <laughs> and patients looked at fever with, with true horror. Yeah. Because it was a sign of impending doom and death. For
0: real. I would say like the Probably the most frequent times where I've literally felt like I was about to die is because I had a really high fever. It just makes you feel like something is very, very wrong. All right.
1: So a moment ago I said that I don't treat (laughs) fever, but I'm not really a hardliner, and I don't argue that much with – certainly not with patients. If a patient is requesting something for their fever, I give it to them. Right, yeah. I don't give it if we're just treating a number.
0: You know, I wonder if – if there's some level of fever that you bring it down so that your physical symptoms aren't quite so bad but it's still elevated to the point where it might be helpful in terms of killing the infection well I think so we probably I mean maybe there's just not enough research yet yeah. for that but I feel like that's something that might be real
1: did you know the bees have a fever
0: um no I didn't know that
1: yeah huh. so then, with a certain kind of infectious parasite in a honeybee colony, the bees will will vibrate their wings, which is kind of the same as when you're shivering, and it actually increases the temperature in the hive, and it kills off the parasites.
0: Shit.
1: So bees have so a fever. So it's like a
0: group-level fever. Yeah, almost exactly. Wow, um,
1: that's cool. Senegalese grasshoppers also exhibit a fever, and they can change their mm-hmm. body temperature in a way that that allows them to deal with a certain kind of infection. Lizards. Are cold-blooded, like like insects, but right. they can move towards a heat source, and they do better when they have an infection, which is cool. So we find fever across every domain of life. Wow. It's something that has evolved, that we see over and over again. And again, it's kind of like the factor by Leiden. If it's common, and evolution has preserved it, it must have a function. Sure. So that's the implication. So Not then, always, Yeah, but, You can't but stop there. But so That'd be the logical trap, is if you stopped there and you didn't go out and test it. But people have tested this. So in my specialty of emergency medicine, you come to the ER in an ambulance, and you've got a super high fever, and you're sicker than snot, and then the, the nurse gives a, a Tylenol, as often happens. The doctor signs off on the order. It's been shown that people that have the highest temperatures, if they have the worst kind of infection, which is called sepsis, they actually do better, and they survive way better. And so people with the low temperatures that do worst.
0: Interesting.
1: But you were, you made the point you were talking about um, maybe even shorter fever if we could kind of adjust temperatures. Yeah, I came across a paper today that was looking at um, this was done in mice and they infected these little mice with a the virus these poor little mice and the virus goes to joints but the mice that were housed at a higher temperature I mean still not quite a fever but it was just a warmer temperature they were able to control the infection and get rid of it and the mice that were kept at a colder temperature got a terrible joint arthritis. So, a couple of things when I read this. I just read this, came across this this morning. Somebody sent me oh, an email. Wow. And it, it raises all kinds of ideas. People complain about, oh, my joints hurt when cold weather comes in. Yeah, oh think, yeah. huh, maybe there's something to that. For sure. And then the point that was made in this paper was that um, your extremities, like your feet and your toes, they're colder than your, your core, like your lungs and your heart. Right. And that change in temperature actually gives the virus an advantage. So, even within your own body, the changes in temperature oh. make a difference. And then you think about what happens when you do get an infection in, say, your toe. The toe turns bright red and gets really hot. And that's yep. one of what we call the cardinal symptoms of infection is in Latin, it's calor, which just means heat. And so we doctors are, are trained to recognize that as a sign of infection. What does that mean? Your body's basically giving your toe a fever. Yeah. That's what's happening.
0: Inflammation. Right? All right.
1: So this fever stuff's kind of cool. When you have a runny nose and you have a cold, it might be your nose having a fever. Oh. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, you do have the, the sort of quintessential red nose, like yeah. the Rudolph look while you're sick.
1: Yeah, your nose gets all the, you know, all the congestion, all the mucous membranes get all swollen, delivers all that blood. You're not breathing through it anymore, so you're not cooling it off. It's your way of kind of coping with a fever, you know, basically causing your nose to have a fever.
0: They're little micro-fevers. All right. Yeah. If you
1: didn't have an evolutionary point of view, you weren't interested in this as being something that actually helps you, you wouldn't tie all this together. So this is what's fun, I think, about thinking about evolution and medicine.
0: Absolutely. Because
1: it brings all this stuff together. And it has real-life consequences. We shouldn't be treating fever as much as we do. And for those people that have sepsis, if we give them Motrin or ibuprofen, people are more likely to die. So, again, ignorance is not bliss here. Ignorance of evolution can actually kill our patients.
0: Yeah. Real-world consequences.
1: (laughs) So how are we doing on time?
0: Uh, We are almost at 6, so we have quite a bit
1: of time left oh yeah okay. actually all right yeah. let's uh let's, let's let's go on then
0: okay so we're sticking with oh, this boy. with this
1: theme of how doctors make mistakes all right and this this is one that i think is actually pretty <laughs> important which is that all right this picture comes <laughs> Fever
0: from so hot right now <laughs> nice, nice.
1: <laughs> this comes from a tv show that was in the middle 2000s called caveman and it was based on a commercial. Maybe some of you saw this. It was a Geico commercial. Oh, the
0: Geico commercial. Yeah, guy, so yeah. it had his
1: cavemen, you know, the hipster cavemen. Yep. <laughs> so the, the, the idea here, the, the truth to this, is that our genes are more or less evolved for uh, Ice Age, you know, the Pleistocene. And that we haven't, our genes have not changed a whole heck of a lot in the last 10,000 years. They've changed a little bit. And they have changed in important ways. But at yeah. our at our core, we are cavemen and women.
0: Yes, at least Europeans anyway. Right. People of European descent I should say, not just Europeans. So this
1: is this actually relates to diet and like the whole paleo concept, which is important. And I'm not going to really I'm not going to really go there, but it is true that if we eat industrialized food, processed food, things that we're not evolved to eat, our caveman bodies are not very well don't, don't cope very well and make us get diabetes, make us get obese, give us cardiovascular disease, all the things that we don't like yep. and that are real honest to god health problems really relate to this idea that we have not evolved to deal with mcdonald's it's not yet
0: yeah absolutely right not yet give us another ten
1: thousand years years if we're around and if mcdonald's is around maybe we'll be able to cope with it
0: yeah there the the paleo diet is one of those things where there is a you know some small kernel of truth to it but it's, it's kind of blown out of proportion in a way that feels Commercialized and yeah, the, fake. some
1: of the paleo people have taken the ball and really run with it. Yeah, and they've gone well beyond the science, and they've they there's some there's some ideas in the whole paleo diet, uh, arena, which are a little off target and are not not supported by science. But yeah, people that just reject the whole paleo thing though, I think they're missing the boat because there's some some of this is really real. Yeah, the best example I think of the paleo um, deal with with mismatch is looking at. There's a group uh, known as the Pima Indians that live in southern Arizona. Mm-hmm. And they, the Pima also go by a Tohono o- Odom. There's, a, there's an apostrophe in there somewhere. It's a bit hard to pronounce. But the, I'll call them the Pima. The Pima that live in Arizona, almost 100% of them get diabetes and go on to kidney failure and have some serious heart uh, heart problems and health issues. The Pima that live in Mexico, at least historically, who ate a more traditional diet like things like bean, beans and corn mm-hmm. um, had very little uh, diabetes. So you go from 90% yeah. down to like 30%. And it's all dietary. This is all an environmental change. has everything to do with the Arizona Pima consuming a diet, which is, isn't appropriate for them. So this is a very real thing.
0: Yeah. Uh, Ghost just mentioned speculation mixed with modern internet marketing has become pretty dangerous. I love it. Yes. Well said. Very, very important concept. <laughs> for sure.
1: Um, anything more you want to say about that
0: uh about Pima or okay. about caveman us, us cavemen yeah uh, how about another fun fact that um if if you are of european descent that you have you are likely to have anywhere from like three to five percent neanderthal dna so
1: and do you know how much you have
0: i do not know how much i have i need so to do it still my
1: brother actually did the 23 and me oh cool yeah so 23 and me of course it's a commercial service You send them, I think, a swab Mm -hmm. of your, uh, like a cheek cell or some saliva. And they go ahead and and measure, look at your chromosomes and analyze your DNA. And I want to say I'm about 3% Neanderthal. Oh, cool. Some days it seems like it's much more than that. Yeah, yeah. I'll just say. (laughs) So this is based on my brother. I'm guessing the two of us have pretty similar amounts of Neanderthal DNA.
0: Yep. All right. Cool. Kind of fun. I do really want to do that at some point. I just haven't, you know. Had an extra hundred bucks <laughs> to spend on stuff like that.
1: All right, um, so this is uh, Maxwell Smart. Oh yes, get smart, get smart. So he's the, the unwitting, original. unwitting secret agent. Yep. And so I think that the us doctors, we act as a, as an agent of evolution when we're doing things to our patients. Mostly antibiotics. That's the best example that we've talked about. But let's see what the next one is. Okay. So there it is. We are selecting for really bad bugs and this happens all the time. And for some reason because it's not noticed, we doctors almost never get the get blamed for it. All right? So this is a problem. We're causing an issue that kills patients and we don't get blamed for it. We don't get sued for it. We don't even notice it. Right. All the pressures in our careers have us doing more to patients, prescribing more, not missing the infection. That's the thing that, that scares us so much. Yep. But in overtreating people, treating things that don't require antibiotics, treating things that would go away on their own. That's true of most infections, if you think about it.
0: Um, oh, go ahead. Finish your thought.
1: All I was going to say is that people didn't drop dead of infections all the time prior to right. 1940. Yeah, for That's sure. That's when antibiotics were invented. Yep.
0: We, we sort of think of antibiotics as this, like, total shift in human existence because mm-hmm. um, everybody could die if you get an infection. uh, before antibiotics but
1: well it was a very different life back in the day
0: sure yes certainly more likely but Mm -hmm. maybe not considering what we're doing but i was just gonna say it is kind of astounding to me Mm -hmm. how common it is for people to get a virus and then go to the doctor and ask for antibiotics
1: everything in our culture seems to push people in that direction yeah everything
0: like antibiotics are for bacteria if you have a virus it will not do anything
1: so about i would say that 95 percent of the prescriptions for a pack yeah which is azithromycin are unnecessary because most of them like
0: sinus infections are stuff, treating right? things
1: that don't need antibiotics yep. and most sinus infections according to the CDC, don't need any kind of antibiotics
0: right no, that's not to say that you couldn't get a cold and then somehow get a secondary bacterial infection in your sinus. So it's it could happen. It just usually doesn't. It just usually doesn't. That's the thing. Yeah. So, yeah. I, mean,
1: I can count the cases of like a bad bacterial sinusitis on maybe two hands in my career. Wow. And hundreds of people that have come in requesting antibiotics yep. for something which is so obviously caused by a virus. For sure. Matter of fact, I was taught that we should rename sinusitis to viral rhinosinusitis to make it clear that it's a virus. Sure, but yeah. it hasn't caught on. Oh well. Yeah. Too maybe,
0: maybe we can do that here. PSA. Right.
1: <laughs> well, let's see what we have Spread next. Spread the word, guys. So doctors act as an agent of selection. the problem not only does it cause antibiotic resistance and you know cause the evolution of resistance, but we also make virulence evolve, and virulence is the is the essentially the badness of a bug. It's like how right? potent, yeah, how you know, small doses of certain kinds of bacteria can just be a serious problem for you or they establish a really bad kind of infection. So, I'm thinking cholera, um, you know, there's there are a bunch of hospital bugs that are really virulent. And so this is the deal. And so maybe some of you guys have come across this. But if you go to the hospital healthy and you pick up an infection in the hospital, chances are it's really really bad and we have names for these things and they you know we'll, we'll call it hospital acquired pneumonia
0: mm-hmm. hospital
1: acquired pneumonia is 10 times worse than a pneumonia you get just from you know your neighbor in the community right and we we make these distinctions and we treat hospital acquired pneumonias totally differently because they're much more virulent why are they more virulent it's essentially because of us doctors we're clustering uh, sick people together and then we're giving opportunities to bugs to get transferred from one patient to another that never would happen in nature right it's requiring a human attendant to take that bug from this one sick person and to put it into another one this is why hand washing is so important this is why doctors shouldn't wear ties that kind of dangle over and mop oh, up bacteria on their patients yeah this is why you shouldn't have nurses that wear artificial like fingernails Ooh. and we should avoid jewelry Ooh. so all those things are actually enshrined in some other health systems like in Britain, where they have the National <laughs> Health Service, they actually, the doctors have to wear short sleeves, they can't wear ties, all this stuff is mandated. But sure. of course, in the United States, we're a little more free and easy about things, and you see all kinds of nonsense. Doctors rarely wash in their stethoscope. Um, it's a real problem because we're making the bugs worse. We're making them more virulent. And that, that's a bad problem. Yeah. And so.
0: virulence generally means a worse time for you as a, as a person, if you make it yeah if you make it so it's, if you, yeah, it's, if you it's survive gonna be
1: fun you're gonna spend longer in the hospital yeah so again it, it just blows my mind kate that people don't know this
0: i know and it's like it's so central to so many things because everybody's mm-hmm. gonna end up in the hospital at some point probably just probability wise you're probably gonna end up there yeah
1: Um, and just when i i mentioned that we don't we don't face the consequence of doing this (laughs) even though we are responsible for it Mm -hmm. i think that it's not going to change until people get sued
0: yeah i think you're probably right about that and Um, i would
1: and here's the thing we're getting to the point now with those if you remember like those little trees where i was showing you influenza we can map bugs now with tremendous precision that we couldn't before we can see single nucleotide changes in in microbes where you can really get a fingerprint and tell exactly mm -hmm. where it came from and I bet we'll see some forensic microbiology in hospitals. Totally. And that actually could lead to lawsuits. I'm not advocating this. I'm a doc. I don't like the whole idea of being sued. But
0: yeah, sure. You know, <laughs> I do think that we
1: doctors need to take responsibility for this. Here's something that we're causing, and we have caused, and we can do something right. about it.
0: So short of, of lawsuits, um, Classy actually just asked what steps would need to be made to see some of these changes. Also, Horizon, hey, what's up?
1: Okay. So, fewer antibiotic prescriptions, that's a biggie. So, we've okay. talked about that. This virulence problem, um, and there's a picture That's a picture of an endoscope. So, mm, <laughs> there's this ter- terrible terrible um, bunch of cases that happened in Los Angeles and other places where they found that little bacteria were kind of hanging out in the endoscope, and even when they put it through the sterilization machine, the bacteria stayed put, and they, they didn't get killed. Wow. So, here you have people in the intensive care unit, so sick that... You know, they would die if it wasn't for you know, being on a bunch of machines. Mm-hmm. And they would have no way of transferring a microbe from one sick person to another. And here you have the helpful doctors coming by with their machines, dipping it down into their you know, esophagus and taking a little look around and uh, inoculating with some highly virulent bugs. Um, so one key is pretty basic. Hand washing, making sure we're not, like I said, uh, having our clothing transfer microbes from one patient to another. That we're sterilizing our equipment. This is basic stuff, but then there's some other stuff which is a little bit higher level, which just, just talks about how we design a healthcare system. But and we did this as an exercise in my class. We can design a healthcare system where we can actually evolve things towards being more benign and less virulent. So we 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 actually have the power to shape evolution of the microbes that we deal with. We can make them better for us. It might take some time, and we're not good at it. Right. Usually evolution is a problem. Not something which is a good thing.
0: Sure. Do you think we'll ever have, you know, dress code regulations for for that kind of thing like Britain does?
1: Um. Yeah, but because we don't have a single health healthcare system, mm. it's going to be a long time coming.
0: Right. For and sure. And plus,
1: we're just a little bit more libertarian here in, in the U.S. Sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. True. <laughs> anyway, right. I don't worry, a
0: Also, cancer. Yeah.
1: So. Let's bring it back to cancer. So just like the antibiotic resistance problem that evolves, we can actually cause the evolution of cancers that are impossible to treat. So if you ever wondered why when someone undergoes a cancer treatment with chemotherapy, that when they relapse, their cancer is no longer sensitive to the thing they took the first time. It's almost always resistant. So they have to do something different. And they have to do something that's worse. And this ends up killing our patients. So the implication here is that it's not always better to use something that's, that's stronger and that actually uh, is a more cytotoxic, and that's what that's what chemotherapy is. It kills cells, and we've so far we've gone along this idea of thinking about cancer as being like an invading army, and we just need to hit it with everything that we got. Right. There's this military metaphor that we preemptive strikes, yeah, yeah, preemptive <laughs> strikes. We got to detect them early and do surveillance, and you know bring out the big guns. All these phrases invoke. This military metaphor. But at the same time, the things that we do can cause evolution. And we're basically evolving. The remaining cancer cells are totally resistant to the stuff that we use and is then totally untreatable. So sometimes we have to do this stuff because there's no other option. But smart people are coming up with new treatments that don't actually try to kill every cell, Mm. they actually try to shape the evolution of the tumor in such a way that it doesn't kill you so that you die of something else. This is particularly true for things. That are slow growing like prostate cancer so prostate cancer is a good example of this and some breast cancers, like ductal carcinoma in situ Um, it's the kind of thing that Mm -hmm. people are saying we shouldn't even call a cancer so our whole the whole mindset needs to shift away from this military metaphor that we can we can actually live in a peaceful coexistence with some cancers that don't kill us and we're actually making mistakes by early detection and hitting them with these super strong drugs
0: So how about with the example of prostate cancer, right? Mm -hmm. This is one where you can, not always, but you can often remove the prostate and also remove the cancer, presumably, um, and then potentially not have any further issues after the fact. So is that one where, I guess what I'm asking, because I am a woman and I don't have a prostate, uh, is there a benefit to keeping your prostate around? In say older age,
1: well, some men uh like to have an erection. Just well, saying. so like it's just one of those things.
0: If, so that's, if that's, you that's don't that's have actually, a the, prostate, <laughs> are you less likely to be able to have they almost erection. always
1: damage the nerves? That,
0: really? Uh, yeah, oh, it, it, causes, it
1: causes impotence. I did so not that's the, know that's that. That's the biggie. It could also cause uh that makes incontinence, perfect sense, so you can't control your, your urine flow. Okay, um, and it's a major, massive invasive <clears> surgery. <laughs> so that's that's the reason not to do it. A lot of men will say, you know what, I'd rather keep the equipment working. As opposed to sure. undergoing the big, uh, big uh, invasive surgery. I
0: was not familiar with that. Yeah. So, this is for called, but, obvious reasons. <laughs>
1: but the super aggressive, that military idea of going in and just taking it out. Right. That surgeons love to do this. And that was called the radical cancer cure. And if you think about it, breast cancer has undergone this big change over the last few decades. And we don't go and lop off the entire breast and take away the pectoralis muscle, you know, the, the chest muscles. Um, that was a radical mastectomy. Uh, it turns out that that surgery doesn't work any better than doing a lumpectomy where you just take out the the localized tumor Mm -hmm. so again one thing that medicine has been changing to is this less is more idea why do more when less is just as good right why do more when more actually kills you why do more when more causes more suffering sure so we should we should actually do as little as possible and this is the ethic that i take to my my career And I think that there would be a market for it. I think that people would like to go to the doctor and say, "You know what? This doctor is going to do what's necessary and nothing more. You know, not going to do a whole bunch of unnecessary testing and treatments, and hopefully keep people, you know, better off." I would love to practice that way, and I try to bring that into when I take care of my patients in the ER.
0: I like that. Mm -hmm. I'm sure your patients appreciate
1: it. I don't know. Sometimes you wonder.
0: Yeah. Right it's you know well if yeah how often do you do you have conflict i would say? maybe Ooh. not maybe that's a strong word but like maybe a difference of opinion with with patients
1: good question
0: maybe a lot maybe a little i don't know so general... in general listen
1: in the er if patients have been taking um addictive narcotic pain medications mm-hmm. it changes the whole dynamic
0: Oh, I'm sure. Yeah.
1: And so a lot of conflict. A few times where my life has been threatened by patients where i really worried about it, and I can remember at least one case, uh, involved me not prescribing them an gotcha. opioid, okay. narcotic medication. So that's a big area of conflict. It's sure. not the only one. Some people are professional patients. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's their whole identity to be sick. Right. And so they want you to do more. And if this gets mm-hmm. to, like, the extreme case, it's called Munchausen syndrome. Yep. And so people come in and they get multiple operations. I think we don't recognize Munchausen syndrome as much as we should. It's a very real thing. And so that when I try not to do the CAT scan or try not to call the surgeon, the patients get angry with me. Not good.
0: So yeah, I I guess um, maybe a subset of those conflicts, like how many do you think are because you understand something about evolution or they don't or Mm. they have a preconceived notion about what their treatment should be coming in or... Well, you know, well, you know,
1: well we, we doctors and and just the whole society trains people to go and get antibiotics for colds like you right, talked right, about. Right. So they've, they've done this before. They get sick. They go to the doctor. The doctor gives a prescription. They ultimately get better. They think the antibiotic cured their cold. Yep. It didn't. Right. But they've done this five times. Then, then they come and see me and I tell them, you don't need an antibiotic. And they've been waiting in the ER for five hours. With people in misery That's all around brutal. them. And they've had a terrible time. And they're like, "What? You're not going to do anything for me, doctor?" And this is a this is a big problem. Yeah. And so you know you can solve some problems just by education, but not not solve every problem. Mm-hmm. But that's one area where being empathetic, telling people, "Yeah, I know you feel terrible. I'm so sorry you had to wait a long time. and No, I'm not going to give you the, that prescription that you want." Right.
0: On the flip side of that, then you also have. At least maybe, I'm not sure that I know any people who Mm -hmm. fall under this, but we at least have the perception of doctors who sort of push certain treatments or maybe they're getting something from a pharmaceutical company and you end up pushing their drug as opposed to a different one. There's sort of a weird perception of that. Right.
1: So, you know, they talk about healthcare being 20% of the the economy. It's a really big chunk of it. Yeah. There's a lot of money flowing through the medical system. Uh, We are human beings, so we are actually susceptible to all these influences, Mm -hmm. including money. And doctors sometimes are lazy and do the wrong thing again because we're human. Sure. So yeah, some people will will just—I'll tell you—it's easier just to prescribe the antibiotics, and then while you're in it, throw in a prescription for oxycodone. Your patients are going to be temporarily happier. (laughs) You know that kind of thing gets you into real, real problems. So most of my—I've had patients really upset with (laughs) me. for not giving me those two things um sometimes antibiotics but like I said I've never had my life threatened because I didn't give them a prescription for penicillin and I have had my life threatened for not giving Dilaudid and Demerol
0: yikes for sure yeah how much security do you guys need there
1: (laughs) so we talk about this I think it's just a matter of time I mean our town can be pretty violent
0: yeah it's true and, and we, we and take the, care of some
1: really unsavory characters yeah. every once in a while. And
0: the opioid epidemic is getting worse.
1: Right. Everywhere. So I'm going to so. knock on wood right now. Or, you know. Yeah. Um, we're just lucky that we haven't had somebody go into the ER and start shooting things up. Um, it has happened in other places. There was an ER doctor killed in El Paso a year or two ago. And we, we do hear about this every once in a while happening in other cities. So we're not immune to the whole gun violence thing.
0: Um, we have a question actually or not question uh, just a comment from Hosebeats Um, in my opinion doctors aren't the problem it's the bizarre system we've set up we buy access to healthcare not actual healthcare Um, you know what? thought provoking it's very thought provoking
1: (laughs) I I agree listen when there are problems in a system which is as complicated as the modern healthcare system which is man it's got all kinds of different parts to it And there's different ways of delivering healthcare. I wouldn't say there's any problem in which doctors are the main problem. Sure. You know, for this example, I'm just saying doctors are unaware of a little piece of information, which is not all that complicated. That can really lead to different treatments, save lives, make people live, and relieve some suffering. Right. And this is a very real, very real deal. And I think that it's, it's this is truly a matter of education. And you don't even necessarily need to. Buy into everything about evolution to accept that some of these ideas are true, and in fact, people are much even if you have some religious I, objections to evolution, people still don't have much of a problem thinking about cancers evolving mm. or thinking about malaria evolving. And plus, it's just so obvious; we can show it happening in real time right. for a real patient, or their E. coli and their bladders evolving as we give them for antibiotics. Sure. All this stuff is real, and so just being aware of it can change practice, save lives, relieve yeah. suffering. We need to be doing more of this
0: yeah that's a PSA if there ever was one
1: yeah it's just again it's, it's just so obvious
0: yeah for sure
1: I forget what the next slide is if let's we have time see. for it
0: let's find out yeah we got time all right we got like 20 minutes
1: So this is the genomic conflict idea oh again, now we're kind of getting into a little bit higher level stuff I have two examples of this one is the, the the microbes in your guts usually we do get along with them until we get that terrible case of campylobacter and then everything goes completely off the rails But even when it appears that things are going okay, now we know that actually microbes in your gut are responsible for obesity. So your weight gain depends almost entirely, not, not every little bit, but it really depends on the composition of the microbes that you have in your guts. So whether you're hungry or not hungry, whether you gain weight or don't gain weight, and how you eat, all can be dependent on the bacteria in your guts. Why does this happen?
0: 104 fever with Ooh. the campylobacter oh, not Woo.
1: good not good at all
0: i've had a 104 fever before when i was a kid
1: oh, yeah. i think i did too i think i remember it
0: oh yeah i think i just remember the suffering <laughs> yeah.
1: so even when you're not obviously infected with something you're 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 at this constant low level conflict with the microbes in your gut mm-hmm. a lot of times you're cooperating with them too so it's it's a mixed bag you're cooperating with some you're in conflict with others and they're actually driving a whole bunch of diseases this is cool and it's fun because we now know that the microbiome is so important to our health, and we know that the microbes in our guts are responsible for all these things that we didn't even think about, like mood, and behavior, and your weight, and whether or not you get hypertension, the high blood pressure. So this is a whole area where we can actually modulate, if we're smart, we can actually shift evolution, remove some of these conflicts, and actually make the, make the uh, interaction between ourselves and our gut microbes a more harmonious one. If we pay attention to these dynamics, the dy- underlying dynamics are evolutionary. The little microbes are busy evolving, and they've co-evolved with us. And they haven't evolved one hundred percent to be our friends. And so that's that's the key insight
0: here. So let's see what we have next, okay. if we have time. Yeah, if I could get um, Hosebeats over here to get me some water, please. I've been. I'm mm. yes.
1: Or maybe something stronger.
0: No, just water. Okay. I'm just very thirsty right, right.
1: now. Um, let's see what we have next. So the other really cool thing is that pregnant moms don't share 100% genes with the babies. They usually, on average, they have about 50% of their genes, which means that 50% of the the baby's genes come from dad. And this is a cool area of what we call genetic or genomic conflict. So obstetricians taking care of pregnant women have not taken the evolution class, and they're not aware of this. But really, um, maybe you've heard of preeclampsia or eclampsia, this is this high blood pressure that happens in moms, it's driven 100% by this genomic conflict, or in large part by it. When uh, gestational diabetes, mm-hmm. so when women get high blood sugar during pregnancy, same deal. Wow. And even even more than that, what's even cooler, there's this researcher by the name of Amy Boddy, who has done work uh, with a colleague of mine, Athena Actippus, who's now at ASU, and, and uh, Amy Boddy's now at UC Santa Barbara, and she's looking at this thing called microchimerism. Fetal cells, some of them carrying genes from dad, embed themselves in mom's body for her entire life. This is a real thing that moms are carrying around the cells from their baby for the rest of their life. And sometimes those cells can actually change what happens in mom. They can change the risk of cancer, for instance, or they can actually change uh, some things that we think about the immune system. So this, this is a complex area, super cool, Flying totally under the radar doctors aren't aware of it obstetricians don't pay attention to it pregnant moms don't know anything about it mm, but it's mm-hmm. real it's real and it has some really cool evolutionary effects on on health this this one um is probably not as big of a, a mistake i think as some of those other areas but it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting one for sure, sure.
0: That sounds like a cool way to get an excellent Absolutely.
1: power <laughs> totally right
0: yeah yeah
1: acquiring all these weird genes. I know, right? All right, so this is just getting this back to fun. our microbiome. I took this picture from, It came. I went up to the University of Utah and I gave a talk up there and this was on the University of Utah, um, one of their sites. And it was all about your micro, microbial friends and your guts <laughs> and all the great things they do for you. And they conveniently left out all the bad things they can do for you. Yep. But really both the good and the bad, they come with evolution. Sure. And the point that I like to make is that if we understand this stuff, we can change it, and we can if we understand why why evolution has shaped some microbes to be harmful to us. That can have have a lasting impact. Um, I personally, I love how the microbiome fits in with evolutionary medicine. Oh yeah, absolutely. And we talked. We started off talking about how evolution is not taught in medical schools, and microbiome really isn't either. But this is an area where people are learning that the microbiome has these big impacts on us, and so does evolution two things go hand in hand and this is actually a great way to learn about it so
0: we're never really alone we're
1: never we're never alone
0: (laughs) and we have a whole microbiome episode of science happy hour too um i think the vod is still probably um on the the twitch page so good stuff um yeah and he was there too oh wait i was there So was i yeah (laughs) that was your first one actually Mm -hmm. yeah we have a question um so visceratus is asking Mm -hmm. there's a bit of a preface here okay Um, uh, just curious, mostly this presentation seems to be a cautionary one towards possible bad effects from evolution in regard to medicine, but if you can see and track so many microbes for possible bad changes, has there ever, ever been a case where some microbe has been found to change in a short period of time, possibly by some sort of modern medicine mechanism, um, that has changed for the better? Do we have any modern medical interventions that have pushed evolution in a positive way for microbes do we know of any of those
1: so those, those examples are kind of few and far between and most of the time because we're not paying attention to the underlying dynamics and we don't understand what's going on sure we're usually making things worse so but the hope is that if we do understand these things we can you know you, we can intentionally <clears throat> go in and change virulence for instance And that's something that Paul Ewald advocated. He said, hey, hey, docs, hey, people that are doing public health, we can actually change the environment in a way that changes the evolution so that bacteria that that lack these virulence properties, they actually do better. Oh, Actually, I'll give you one example, which is a good one. All right, diphtheria. You guys heard of that? Diphtheria, yes. We don't get it so much anymore. It's a really bad, horrible sore throat. It can even kill you. Oh, wow. But we don't get diphtheria because most of us are vaccinated. Uh, we get we get
0: yep. the, the that's D- dpt is that, that yeah or,
1: or tdap tdap yeah there
0: we go yeah, so yeah, now yeah. we
1: get tetanus diphtheria and acellular pertussis that's just the acronym mm-hmm. that's what i give if you come in with a cut and we, we vaccinate people we say hey we're, we give you we give, uh, give three different things in you know along with the tetanus shot so this is an area where the vaccination actually has selected against the really virulent horrible diphtheria because you still have diphtheroids really closely related microbes that live in your throat but they, they're not the really bad one so the vaccine actually shaped the evolution in a good way so that's one example and there there are more um but they are many there's much many fewer examples of sure. evolving things in the good direction compared to in the bad direction right and crispr is a you know this technology uh. where we can we can go in there and we can actually remove some of these um they call them pathogenicity islands in the genome of certain kinds of really bad bugs. We can snip it out, take it out, and then convert that, that microbe into um, a benign form of its of its former self. Self, <laughs> And that can be a really good thing that we could do in the future. Right. Um, I don't see people doing that now.
0: Yeah, not, um, not yet. There are other, mean, other
1: microbial things that, that we can do. Um, so one example that actually makes babies' microbiomes better is breastfeeding. It's pretty basic babies that are born by c-section they don't they don't go through the birth canal and they don't acquire all those good microbes from mom mm-hmm. so there's a there's a study that was done at nyu where they took a swab they actually swabbed mom's vagina and they I've heard of this. They, when the baby is born by c-section through the abdomen they then swab the baby's mouth with those microbes and so far we think that those babies do better
0: don't tell your kids that if all it right happens.
1: so this is just be kind of being aware of how important the microbiome is, and trying to give the baby the best possible microbe exposures to get the maximum amount of protection from infection, and may and, and have all kinds of beneficial events later in life. And as that study goes on, we'll know whether that procedure helps babies and um, not get asthma and not right. get other issues.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask if it works or not. So we think it does. Okay. Yeah. I mean, so, theoretically.
1: Um, so just, just in case you were wondering, if you actually like this topic, so I have a blog, evolutionmedicine.com, and I have, uh, I'm have i the program chair for a big conference that's happening this summer. It's going to be in Park City, Utah. Oh, cool. And the woman who did that study, using the, the, the swabs, um, she's going to give a talk. Oh, nice. Uh, she's one of our invited plenary speakers. That's awesome. Her name is uh, Gloria Bello-Dominguez. Uh, Bella dominguez,
0: dominguez. mm mm-hmm. that's, that's quite or the maybe name. Maybe dominguez like Bella. Oh, okay. <laughs> is it anyway, hyphenated? It's hyphenated. Oh, ah, okay, cool. She's
1: She's terrific and she gives a great talk. And cool. uh, pretty much every example that we've talked about in this brief time will be featured at this at this conference. Nice. It's super exciting. Uh, we've had you know, hundreds of people from around the world come to this, and it's going to be in a beautiful place.
0: Very cool. Yeah, Utah's awesome. That's, that's my plug for the conference. Nice. So, is it open to the public or no? Yeah. It is? Oh, okay, cool. Mm-hmm. That's
1: awesome. I mean, we don't specifically have a you have to pay a conference fee, mm-hmm. but I, I've I know of people that are not MDs that are just interested folks that are going to come sure. to this conference.
0: Cool. That's awesome. Well, at there least you one go. Or, at least one or two. If you're anywhere near Utah. Mm-hmm. See what else we got. We'll probably do. And the thing is that everybody's
1: interested in human health. Oh, you yeah. know? And I think it's all fine and good to talk about stuff. You know, biologists spend most of their time thinking about other organisms and not mm-hmm. humans. That's why there's this whole separate field of anthropology yep. which you've gone into. Or
0: even human biology, yeah.
1: too. So there's there's fun stuff to think about in terms of these concepts that underlie everything about our bodies and how, our origins. And it's particularly fun to think about how it applies to us and how it applies to our health.
0: For
1: sure. You know, if, it, if it's truly a matter of life and death, um, these are things that it's not all doom and gloom. I, I don't want to leave people with that impression.
0: No, certainly not.
1: But I just wanted to tell you, it's, it's important you know i deal with life and death stuff every day sure. and that's just my job is important and this topic is important
0: yeah i mean this is why we we want to understand these kinds of things mm-hmm. because if we can change our behavior our treatment styles or whatever it is that can ultimately help help people so that's even though the the cause is sort of doom and gloom there's there's a bit of a, a hopeful note to it in that we can actually do something about it
1: yeah that's I- and one area, which I do think is perhaps the most, has the most implications for having beneficial treatments instead of just not doing things, which I think is a big message from mm. from evolutionary sure. medicine. We tell people, just stop doing it. Right. <laughs> You're hurting people by giving so much antibiotics. Yeah, yeah. But with the microbiome, we can, we, the same argument applies. You're messing up the microbiome with the antibiotics, but we can give microbes.
0: Yes. So Fecal point, transplants.
1: Fecal transplants. I, but right before this, I was—it uh, snowed in the mountains near here, and I wanted to go yeah. check out the snow. It was very so I, went, I went to the Sandia Mountains with my dog, nice. and she was running around, and I see her like chomping on something in the trail. She's eating, she's eating poop, right? And of course, I yell at her. to I try, I, to, am I, try to, I try to keep her from doing it because um, that's sort of a human nature thing—you try to keep, you know, organisms that you care about from eating poop it's kind yep. of a basic thing right? yeah it's pretty gross yeah it's kind of gross and
0: then they but have then, really bad breath then, i know i was, I was like you're, right, you're not getting any kisses <laughs> I know. That's, right. that's it
1: but then i thought about it and i was like you know as long as that coyote or whatever that animal was that she's eating the poop as long as it wasn't sick right it probably actually had it's good fine. good bugs
0: i mean they so dogs eat <laughs> poop at least this is what i've heard mm-hmm. so don't don't hold me to this but
1: they I do. I've I've seen it.
0: Dogs eat poop because oh yeah, I've definitely I definitely know that they do this. Um, but the reason why supposedly dogs eat poop is because their sense of smell is way more powerful than ours, and they can actually smell in certain poops that there is still some nutrient availability in that. Oh, poop. I don't think it's the nutrients. I really think no? it's the microbes. Yeah.
1: I think this is a fecal transplant Ooh, uh, in dogs. Interesting. That's what, that's what I think it is. So. I mean, this is just my speculation, but it kind of goes along with everything that we're learning. Sure. That they actually seek out, they almost never eat old poop. It's almost always fresh poop.
0: Yep. It's always fresh poop.
1: So it's fresh poop, which is loaded with bacteria.
0: Especially cat poop, which Malikin just mentioned. They're like tasty treats for dogs, right? No. But like maybe if it's a microbe thing, cats probably have a very different microbiome, essentially. So like maybe there's some benefit to getting inoculated with very different microbes. And that's why. Cat Again, the, doc- so the doctor and me is kind of freaking, freaking out about this. I know it's so gross, but
1: my dog loves horse poop.
0: Oh, horse poop! Yeah, yep, it's good stuff. Cow pies,
1: right? So herbivore. Yep. So if you want to acquire good microbes, I think you'd be more likely to get them from a horse than a cat, right?
0: Oh yeah, for sure. Maybe
1: a little, bit, maybe a few fewer parasites. I would hope.
0: Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Maybe.
1: All right. See, um, so the microbiome is good yeah. stuff. This is I, I love sure. this topic. I love it. I think it's great for, um, under, as, a, as a way to understand a lot of these things. and it's Also, just like evolution itself, microbiome, things like dogs eating poop and what's up with that, it leads yep. you to places that you wouldn't have anticipated.
0: Right. For sure. Now that we
1: know that having a diverse microbiome is important, you know, they're not, like I said, there's some bad ones in there. Yep. But a lot of times if we have lots of different kinds of microbes in our guts, that protects us. From some of the pathogens. The bad ones,
0: That's are That's probably what's happening numbered.
1: when my dog eats yeah. poop on the trail.
0: There's also some weird yeah. behavioral stuff, <laughs> so I've heard that um some so if you have multiple dogs like we do, mm-hmm. um because there's a, you know, inherent hierarchy within those those dogs, right. um that ones that are are sort of lower mm-hmm. on the pecking the pecking order will eat the poop of the the alpha. And for some sort of like, oh, hey, I'm your peon. I eat your poop.
1: That is fascinating. Yeah,
0: I don't know how true that is, but I have heard this. And huh. our dog, who is the, the habitual poop eater, Lily, <laughs> is, it's very obvious that our dogs have a, a hierarchy. It goes, Martha, Hoagie, Lily, like 100%. They walk through the door in that order. They walk on walks, on the leash in that order. Uh, and Lily, who is ostensibly at the bottom... Uh, eats martha's poops only so maybe this, it's a this seems like this thing. is a really
1: important area of study right someone needs to study dominance hierarchies and poop seriously. eating seriously you know yeah even if it's just dogs
0: yep. coprophagy <laughs> yeah. who knew it could be so so exciting
1: exactly <laughs> yeah we listen there's there's more to this we should probably have another another discussion yeah for about, sure please focus really on the microbiome. And how that is a great way to think about evolution.
0: <laughs> Classy said the previous stream uh, I'd been on was talking about poop soup, which just sounds awful, but it's a really great rhyme. Uh, if the next stream is about eating poop, then I'll <laughs> know the universe wants me to eat poop. <laughs> yeah, well, for some reason that's we an talk interesting way poop to think about the on universe. Here quite a bit, actually. Right. Um, I mean, there's a reason. I don't know if you guys have watched Scrubs as a doctor, Have you watched Scrubs?
1: Yeah, do they still? It's is like it on. reruns? I mean, it's
0: a, it's on reruns yeah. now, but like old um, Zach oh, Braff series. I, I love that, that that Yeah, show. I love Scrubs. They had their musical episode. It's the guy that plays
1: the senior resident, I can't remember his name.
0: Oh, um, but he's great. Is that Dr. Cox? he's yeah. he attending?
1: Is he? I I maybe. So. Yeah, maybe. You know, it's been a while since I, I saw it, but yeah, he's it's... he's a funny, funny. Yeah. Doctor. Oh, yeah. It's uh, great stuff.
0: They have their musical episode, and there's that song that they perform. Mm check the poo they're just like every every issue when people come in every they're just like check the poo so you know it's
1: funny and we laugh about it but yeah there are there are a few jobs that really involve putting your finger up someone's butt and (laughs) and my job is one of them i'm just yeah
0: yeah yeah for sure yep well um should we keep going or should we do it on that note? <laughs> what do maybe you think?
1: maybe we should do it on, on that note. That's okay. A, like I said, I, I think I have a slide or two more where we could talk <laughs> about some additional things.
0: Let's see where where we're at.
1: Yeah, but but, but yeah, there's Oh,
0: there's just a couple more. Yeah. So
1: So, so these again are reasons to do these evolutionary are some fun medicine.
0: Facts.
1: Kind of kind of making the hard sell for why we should do it. Yeah. So we shouldn't waste money there in research. Go. And I have an example of that. It takes longer than than a minute to talk about. Sure. So But more knowledge, knowledge is power, and we can devote our research money to actually finding real cures as opposed to fake ones and doing stupid stuff and going down dead ends. And I think that evolution can make us get to better treatments. Again, the whole goal is saving lives. And that's what it's all about. So the next one is... Here you go. Sometimes the answer is right there in front of us. And uh, I included this slide because the guy's holding an IV bag and if anybody's watched like shows like scrubs or i don't know even gray's anatomy sure you know they always show the person being wheeled into the er someone's holding the IV bag and they're all in a hurry and that, that's actually real if you go to our er more or less across the street you'll see that almost everybody has this is our first priority is getting that IV bag hung and we think of it as being magic and i remember thinking that when i was in training that there's something magical about the IV bag right it turns out there's not and actually for Maybe for our sickest patients, the IV bag actually hurts people. And oh, that, yeah. that evidence actually exists. It's already there, and you just have to look it up. But we don't pay attention to it because it just doesn't fit in with our idea about how disease works. And we think this just, it makes people temporarily look better with all their numbers. But if you had an evolutionary point of view, you would think, well, maybe having a low blood pressure, if you are shot in the stomach or if you have a terrible infection, maybe a low blood pressure might possibly be helpful. And so having that idea has led people to actually study this, that exact idea. And people have found that if you're sick with a horrible infection, that the fluids actually hurt you. At least that's true in Africa, and we talked about this and last time. Yes,
0: and, that, and that's because of, so the fluids are connected to the low b- blood pressure, right? Or well, the fluids make the blood pressure go up. Go up right.
1: And if the body wants, again, quote unquote, the body wants to have a low blood pressure because it's an evolved adaptation then we're we're doing things that are counterproductive right just like we're fighting against the body's fever and
0: something similar so- happens
1: here and even <laughs> fluids seem like they're even worse for you than Tylenol for, for a lot of patients that's,
0: sort, that's so crazy cause it, it is just crazy. seems so innocuous
1: so all I'm saying is you don't even need the evolution the evidence is there right but the evolutionary part can make you sure. take up the, the new way of doing things the smarter way and the better way.
0: Absolutely. And
1: then we don't kill patients, yeah. which is what we all want, right? Right. And if you're a patient, you probably don't want to be killed. Yep. Just saying. Yeah. So that, that might be close that's, to it.
0: That's probably it. There's a couple but things. these are just like yeah. places that are doing. there's
1: some centers of evolutionary medicine. UCLA has one. ASU cool. has one. There are some other places that really have really made, made this happen. UNM does not have one.
0: Maybe you should found it.
1: Uh, we've talked about it yeah it might happen cool there's a lot of work go- that goes into having a center
0: oh yeah I, I can only imagine so
1: maybe that will take some time to happen sure we'll see hey um, but oh, anyway this is a very real thing yep. and then finally I should have had a slide about our conference in Park City yeah. um, but like all good areas of science you want to get the people that are interested in one place so we can have fun maybe drink some wine talk about cool Probably. stuff some fun research and do the the fun part of science.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: That's August first through fourth in Park City, Utah. Just in case there are any medically oriented people, scientists. Yeah. There or there's is at interest, least one doctor interested humans there, so. that want to come. Yeah. And for learn sure. more about themselves. I'm,
0: I'm kinda interested.
1: We do intend to make this sort of a, a, a party. It's gonna be mm-hmm. it's gonna be science, but it's gonna be fun too. I Very hope that cool. we can come too, Kate.
0: Yeah, I'm kinda interested in doing that now. <laughs> kinda yeah. kinda. Kinda kinda. All right. Well this um, has been this has
1: been fun. Any more questions? From? Yeah.
0: Um. Let's see what do we got. It's a lot of poop stuff. My dog still, likes to bring poop yeah. to my dad. Yeah. <laughs> and it, is it because it wants my dog, my dad to eat it? <laughs> That's like like cats do that, where they like bring a dead bird to to their owners, like here, have a gift. Not for eating, but like just gifting. Just gifting. Yeah. That definitely happens. But yeah. So well, anyway. So I I think that probably gives us a nice overview of what evolutionary medicine is um so so just to recap it's yes, true it is it's true. interesting
1: and it's important whoa all three all three it's got the whole it's got the trifecta yes and it involves dogs eating their own poop or yes it else's does
0: poop. yep jokes <laughs> abound right always